بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والحمد لله رب العالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأن محمدا عبده ورسوله وسبحان الله العلي العظيم أؤمن به واستعينه واستهديه واستجيره لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له اللهم اجعل في سمعنا نورا وفي أبصارنا نورا وفي أهلنا نورا وفي بيتنا نورا اللهم اجعل في أمتنا نورا وفي كلامنا نورا واظم لنا نورا يا رب العالمين وصلي وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وعلى من اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين قال الله في محكم كتابه يا أيها الإنسان إنك كادح إلى ربك كدحا فملاقيه Subhanallah, they gave us the gift of Islam. And our fervent prayer is that Allah grants us the guidance of blessed light, blessed light in our souls, in our spirits, in our intellects, in our perception of reality in our reactions to reality the blessings of blessed light and everything we do and everything we say where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us that we struggle in the path we struggle in the path until the very moment that we meet our maker, the nature of our creation is that we have a choice and which choice always comes responsibility and with responsibility comes accountability and with accountability is the ultimate test. Today is the second of Muharram, the beginning of a new Islamic year. With everything that that entails, 
at the very minimum that we always think about as the Quran consistently reminds us that we always think about the legacy we've left behind in the years that passed and in the years that was just completed and that we also think about the trajectory of our future and where we are going from the moment onwards. An important note here, because of the way that we Muslims have forgotten so much of what was basic and elementary in the Islamic tradition. It is of great significance that the Islamic year begins was the month of Muharram, a month in which you start the year with a strict prohibition against everything that is conducive to rancor struggles, fights, violence, and also a month, which is something that is quite often forgotten, in which sinning, committing major sins, is more a more serious offense than the same act would be in a different month. So the months of Muharram, and I know that again, Muslims in the modern age often do not raise this, their children with this, so it has become alien to them, or at least many of them are surprised by it. But for centuries and centuries, it was basic, and it was something that every Muslim knew as elementary in their faith, until Muslims lost their sovereignty and their autonomy over time, the way that they would dispense with time in their own affairs. But the month of Muharram is a month in which acts of sin are considered more serious if committed in this month because it is not just the rights of other human beings that are rendered more sacrosanct, sacrosanct in this month, but also the rights of God are rendered more sacrosanct in that month. It is also a month in which Muslims are enjoined 
and commanded to work very hard at resolving their differences and their conflicts and anything that would rip apart the social fabric of society. Similarly, in the months of Muharram, any acts of charity and kindness and goodness are rewarded far more seriously and significantly than other months. So Muharram in the Islamic tradition is often described as the month as the month of bounties or the month of goodness because of the fact that you are rewarded for the same act of goodness far more significantly than in other months. The month of Muharram is a month in which Muslims are commanded to reflect upon the seriousness of sanctities. And sanctities, hurumat, is another word, perhaps an even seri more serious word, a more significant word, than the word rights. So when we talk about sanctities, we are in fact talking about the idea of rights. Transgressing against the rights of other human beings in the march of Muharram is a much more serious offense, as well as, as I said, transgressing against the rights of God, the sanctities of God. Months of Muharram is a month in which Muslims are supposed to work fervently at strengthening the ties and the bonds that hold the Ummah together. And it is a month that is supposed to be a month of moral reflection about where Islam is, in the life of Muslims and where Islam will be in the life of Muslims. Sadly, however, so much of that is forgotten to the point that the months of Muharram will come and go and many millions of Muslims around the world will not even know that the months has come and gone. There are so many Muslims that are not aware of the Islamic calendar or the significance of the Islamic calendar and not aware of the moral significance of Islamic time and the way that Islamic time 
is supposed to be a continuation of the moral mission of Islam. It is not a coincidence. It is not a coincidence, in my opinion, that the disaster of the killing of the Prophet Salam's grandson, Imam al Hussein, radiallahu anhu, occurred in this month. If you read the development of a part of Sharia law that, again, among the forgotten parts of the Islamic tradition in the modern age, known as Ahkam al-Bugha, or the laws that regulate what to do about dissent and rebellion within the Islamic uh, state, In that context, I'm not going to talk about Hakam al-Bugha. I've written a book about it, and it's it's complex. But the significant aspect, it is as if Allah willed, and in fact, that's what a lot of Muslim jurists say, that Allah willed to teach us through history, through the martyrhood, the martyrdom of the Prophet's grandson, Imam al Hussein, about how wrong things can go if Muslims do not learn to sanctify what God has sanctified and what God has commanded Muslims to sanctify. To, in fact, invite Muslims to reflect upon the consequences and the results of injustice and despotism and tyranny at the very beginning of Islamic history. It is as if the martyrdom of an Imam al Hussein, the Prophet's grandson, is there to prosecute the Muslim conscience throughout history, to stand there as a testament to what the family of the Prophet was willing to sacrifice to uphold a principle in Islam And the principle in Islam is not a bloodline, is not the issue of a bloodline, but it is the issue of substantive justice as a moral value in the Islamic ummah. And also the principle that in the Muslim ummah, people should be ruled 
according to the principle of shura, the principle of consultation and choice, and not according to a tribal affiliation or an aristocratic class that dominates because of its financial power. If you recall, Imam al-Hussein radiallahu an rebelled against or stood against the Amawid dynasty that ruled the Islamic empire at the time. And the reason that Imam al-Hussein rebelled against the Amawid dynasty was because this Amawid dynasty, the basic structure of the Amawid dynasty was the old Qurayshi aristocracy that had converted to Islam late in the game and ruled as a clan, very much like old Arabic politics. As a clan, it ruled the Islamic Ummah and ruled by ingeniously managing financial resources. It paid those who are loyal to it well and punished those who are opposed to it. Imam al-Hussein stood for a very simple principle. That it is not the wealthy that are entitled to govern and rule. And it is not a particular clan or an ethnicity or a race that is entitled to rule. But it is the popular will of the Ummah. While Imam al-Hussein did not have the financial resources, did not have the dirty politics on his side, what he did have was the principle, the moral principle, the ethic. And I think most historians agree that Imam al-Hussein knew that his rebellion at some point, Imam al-Hussein knew that his rebellion is futile and knew that he is doomed to be defeated. And he probably knew, there is so much evidence that he knew that he's even going to be martyred in the process. But he still went ahead with the rebellion. And over years, I have become convinced that he went ahead with the rebellion and accepted martyrhood simply to make a point for Muslims throughout history. And the principle that he made for Muslims throughout history is that justice is, more, is most sacrosanct of all.
as sanctified and sacrosanct as the month of Muharram is, and as important as all the technical legalities are, substantive justice is that what brings life to an ummah, and the absence of substantive justice it would, is what brings death to an ummah. I wish it was possible to simply reflect upon history and theology and ignore the realities of our modern moment, because our modern moment is often not so pleasant. But that would itself be the type of sin that Imam al-Hussein, radiallahu anh, martyred himself, martyred himself to make, to register a point against. If you put your head in the sand and simply ignore the realities of the absence of justice, you are part of the problem. And that often it is, you stand for principle and let Allah worry about the results and consequences regardless of the sort of pragmatic utilitarian balancing of pros and cons, which are so often cited, so often cited, this sort of maslaha, public interest or uh, maslaha type logic of weighing the pros and cons and empiricist approach in which you say, well, you know, often that is nothing more than a way to legitimate your own whims and desires. Often that logic of let's weigh the pros and cons empirically rather to think ethically and principally is precisely the door to the devil. That's that type of pragmatism, pragmatism opens up the trap door that allows for the deconstruction and dissolution of all morality and all ethics in life. We can't bury our head in the sand. We can't ignore the realities that surround us. As regardless of how wonderfully comfortable it would be to escape to history or to escape to, to theology or to escape to the technicalities of law,
it would defeat the very nature of our religious mission that Allah has entrusted us with. In this context, I want to flag a few things. And in my view, they're all interconnected. I noticed perhaps all of us have begun have grown accustomed to this um, in the current environment but yet another rabid Islamophobe wins in local election a woman called Laura Loomer Laura Loomer wins in at least in um, um, I believe that it's basically the Republican primary in Florida. So she's not elected to office yet, but she won a nomination within the Republican primary in Florida. Laura Loomer has a record of rabid Islamophobia. And in fact, so rabid that she's been banned from Twitter, um, uh, these social media venues for saying obscene things about Muslims and for threatening Muslims. She is even, she was even punished by, um, um, What's the name of this? There's Lyft, and the other one is called. Um, Uber. Um, Uber. Oh, Uber. Uber. Yeah. Uh, by Uber, because she insulted Muslim drivers and threatened Muslim drivers and so on. In today's politics, Increasingly, we are seeing bigots and racists finding a platform in the Republican Party. What caught my attention is that yet again, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, congratulates Laura Loomer for winning the Florida primary, praising her and granting her further legitimacy. And by implication, as the President of the United States, sending a clear message that as far as the White House is concerned, it is acceptable civic discourse it's acceptable civic discourse to trash Muslims, to threaten Muslims, to hate upon Muslims. Mind you, 
the very concept of democracy doesn't work unless as a premise you accept the idea of civic society and civic responsibility and civic civic accountability and civic conduct civic conduct means that although i might within the confines of my home behind closed doors i might act the way i wish and say whatever i want once i step in out in the public arena i must act according a code of conduct that we can call a code of civic responsibility why should i act this way because if i don't act in a civil fashion others won't act in a civil fashion and in order for a democracy to work we need everyone to act civilly everyone to act in a civil way so that we can continue have having a civil society a society in which raw power doesn't speak the loudest but process and procedure and rules and the rule of law speaks the loudest that's the whole theory behind a democratic society if you're not willing to accept the logic of civic discourse and civic responsibility and civility then the whole entire edifice of democratic governance falls apart so in fact when the president of the united states congratulates a racist a religious bigot a religious bigot that says in the united states we don't want or need muslims this Laura rumor accused of Ilham Omar and any member well for one she said I don't recognize muslim members of congress because they swore on the quran and for me if you swear on the quran then you're you're not a legitimate official that's just one of her little nibbits snippets she's on record repeatedly that she doesn't want any muslims in the united states and that muslims should all be kicked out etc 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 but this what we all know that trump since coming to power has been doing this he's been congratulating racists and bigots in fact embracing and celebrating islamophobes and making it clear that as far as he's concerned muslims have a right to live 
as long as it is not in the United States and as long as they're not a part of Western civilization and as long as they are subservient and inferior to superior people to them like Europeans and Israelis. So Trump has been very clear from the very beginning. Okay. So what's the issue then? If this is just the same old, same old, and another yet another Islamophobe in a long line of Islamophobes are rising to power in the United States. The historian in me cringes because we all too often forget that the United States is a very young democracy. And a very flawed democracy at that. The United States has not been able to break the cycle of a two-party system which, which entrenches the corruptions of power and which facilitates the rise and entrenchment of a political elite that becomes very much like the Meccan aristocracy of the Umayyad Empire. People who rule by virtue of their privilege, not by virtue of their ideas. If you take a very young democracy and a very flawed democracy and you track the rise of people within this democracy who are far, far more committed to their bigotry and to their racism and to their classism than to the ideal of democracy, what does that tell you? It spills trouble. It translates into a serious threat to the survival of this democracy and to every relatively disempowered or not as empowered class within this democracy. I am scared that with the rise of people like Loomer and the Tea Party earlier and, and of course Donald Trump himself and people, the, the guy who was just arrested, Steve Bannon, that the United States that I got to know in my lifetime will be a very different United States in the life of my child. That the day will come where either my children or my grandchildren will not feel safe as human beings to raise their children. So, 
it is a serious matter. Even if it's not a novel matter. But this is not yet, for me, the crux of the issue. Recently, I had the misfortune of reading a report called A New Political Vision for Muslim Americans by Abdullah bin Hamid Ali, a professor, a so-called professor at the so-called Zaytuna University. Because if you read something like this, then you wonder, what is Zaytuna University and what does a professor mean? If an undergraduate wrote a paper in one of my classes like this, for an undergraduate, I would give them a C, maybe a C minus. If it was a law student or a graduate student, it would definitely not be a passing grade. Nevertheless, Abdullah bin Hamid Ali, and in fact the institution he works with, represents a new trajectory in American Muslim politics. The new political vision for Muslim report, which is described by whoever endorsed it, or, he, or the, the little blip at the end, that says, uh, this unique work is a must read for all Muslims interested and engaged in the American political process. A must read, perhaps as an example of muddled thinking and what a poor education does to the human intellect. The basic argument is that Muslims should be practical and pragmatic and not be opposed to Trump simply because Trump trashes Islam or bans Muslims and that, look, isn't it better to have someone who's honest in saying that I hate Muslims rather than have a president who engages in the language of educated people, engages in the dynamics of civic discourse by speak by perhaps believing one thing and acting publicly in a different way. Now, of course, the idea of civic discourse doesn't occur in this report. I doubt that the writer is even aware of it. But isn't the report claims that Trump has killed fewer Muslims than any other president in recent history and that Muslims should not, not get caught up with things like separation policies, separating children from their parents, the Muslim ban, the 
protests against police racism and Trump's constant support for supremacist people and racist people, Muslims should look at all of that as Trump just basically playing politics. But somehow Muslims should engage in the balancing of pros and cons, this empiricist pragmatism that I just described, that type of raw maslaha analysis rather than ethics and values. And then they will see that when all is said and done, Trump is actually good for them. Remarkably, this report manages to squeeze in Quranic verses and a few hadiths here and there. It starts out with a quote by Umar ibn al-Khattab. In a remarkable example of opportunistic theology, of how you can twist God's revelation in order to say support someone who hates God, the God of Muslims, mind you. I want to ask you this. If the Prophet ﷺ came today, and you gave the prophet, showed the prophet everything that Donald Trump had said about him and his faith. And showed the prophet that this man has supported people like this Linda woman and Bannon before him and a whole line of Islamophobes with the Prophet ﷺ tell you anyone who's bothered to read the Quran or study the seerah will tell you, well, it's okay. You shouldn't get all hung up about these. It's just politics. It's okay to trash Islam. It's okay to trash me because of an unsubstantiated empirical claim that Trump killed fewer Muslims than other presidents. So that now is the yardstick. Can anyone seriously claim that the Prophet would say, it's okay. Yeah, go ahead, support them. You're, you, it is okay to give them your wala, your support. We have gone from aqidatul wala wal bara, the insanity of aqidatul wala and bara in Wahhabi theology, which basically said you shouldn't befriend or be nice to Jews or Christians or non-Muslims. To the other extreme pole, the insanity that we see 
represented by this report in New Political Vision for Muslims, where it basically says, let them insult you, let them hate you, let them imprison you, let them ban you. It doesn't matter. It's all fine with God. Is the issue that some guy wrote yet another report? Well, this same guy wrote an equally repulsive thing about the mass protests against police brutality and Black Lives Matter before. But that's not the issue. That is not the issue. The issue, again, is the place of ethics and morality in Islam. The issue is that this is not an individual. This is a movement. The movement is represented in an institution. The institution is represented by a label. The label is the Zaytuna Institute. And the Zaytuna Institute is represented by a figure, Hamza Yusuf. And Hamza Yusuf is represented by another figure, Bin Bayya. And Bin Bayya represents an ideal. And the ideal is supposed to be Sufism, but it is not Sufism. It is opportunism. Hasha lillah, that this be Sufism. This is raw opportunism. Why do we have a Muslim supporting Donald Trump and the Muslim ban and the racist discourse of Donald Trump and the racist policies of Donald Trump. Very simple. And I am perhaps the only Muslim around that will tell you right in your face what it is. Emirati money. Nothing else. Emirati money. If you're a Muslim and you're willing Emirati influence and Emirati politics, the Emirat now represents a movement against political Islam. What they define as political Islam is really the Islam of care, the Islam of any impact, the Islam of any political organization, the Islam of any system of thought that thinks about issues like justice or race or a policy against police brutality. Now I remember the same fellow is the guy who wrote something, a long tract trashing critical race studies while it was clear that he's never read anything substantial in critical race studies. It's, It's remarkable. Someone who's supposed to be an academic trashing a whole system of thought that he hasn't even studied. Regardless of whether you agree with critical race studies or not, that's not the point. Now, why is this significant? 
The issue is not just simply a Middle Eastern country that is giving money to some Islamic organizations that in turn support Islamic discourses, support a certain breed of Islamic discourses. The issue is this. Donald Trump represents a historical moment of extreme political opportunism. A world in which principles and ethics, including principles and ethics such as human rights and democracy itself, practically stand for nothing. It is a moral regression for America and for the rest of the world. Indeed, the rise of Donald Trump is what allowed for the rise of MBS in Saudi and for MBZ in the Emirates. The rise of Donald Trump is what allowed for the slaughter in Yemen to continue, what allowed for the slaughter in Syria to continue. Another report came out where now it's become clear that in 2015, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates played a pivotal role in inviting Russian intervention in Syria and ensuring the complete defeat of the Syrian revolution. Because in the mind of the Emiratis and Saudis, the Syrian revolution threatened to bring political Islam to power. And they would rather have Russians in Syria and have half of the Syrian population slaughtered, but not have a political, political Islam come to power in Syria. The election of Donald Trump is what allowed for this law, brute logic of violence. It is, let's not forget that it is the election of Donald Trump that moved the American embassy to Jerusalem, that empowered Kushner to marginalize the Palestinians completely and to tell Muslims, forget about sovereignty over Al-Aqsa Mosque. It is what allowed for the rise of the Neom project in Saudi Arabia. It is what has allowed Sisi of Egypt to jail and torture thousands upon thousands of Egyptians. It is what has allowed the entrenchment of the Christian fanatic state in Ethiopia. A lot of Muslims think that Abi Ahmed, the president of Ethiopia, is Muslim. He's, he's Protestant people. He's a Christian Protestant. 
and he's a fanatic Christian Protestant. The idiot Sisi who tells him, say, Allah, Allah, I will not build, I will not hurt Egypt. Probably Sisi of Egypt didn't even know that Abi Ahmed is not Muslim. Abi Ahmed is a Protestant Christian who has a nationalistic project in, in Ethiopia that includes the persecution and destruction of mosques and persecutions of Ethiopian Muslims. That is why under the auspices of Abi Ahmed, Christian nationalism in Ethiopia has been on the rise. And because of how weak and spineless and toothless Muslims are, someone like Abi Ahmed who has murdered thousands of Muslims in Ethiopia gets the Nobel Prize for peace. No one remembered the mosques that were burned since Abi Ahmed came to power. No one remembers that just a couple of weeks ago, an imam and his family were slaughtered and the Ethiopian government just completely, all of this was facilitated by the man that we are told by a major Muslim institution. Don't worry, support him. He's good. Well, why? Because the Emirates supports him. The Emirates and Saudi support Trump because Trump is good for the Emirates and Saudi. For the logic of raw power. For a world without ethics or principles. I am not in any way implying that Biden is a man of principles and ethics. That's not my point. At all. At all. My point is that we as Muslims have a responsibility to testify as to what is truthful, not what is political. We have a responsibility to stand for something. We as representatives of Islam cannot stand for the proposition of opportunistic politics and manipulations and raw calculations of costs and benefits. At a minimum, at a minimum, at a minimum, we must stand at a minimum for the idea that it is not okay to trash Muslims. It is not okay to trash our prophet. It is not okay to trash our Quran. It is not okay to treat Islam and Muslims as if they are a footnote to the world. At a minimum. Last khutbah, I talked about the so-called peace accords between the Emirates and Israel. What has happened since the last khutbah till today? 
immediately after signing this accord with the Emirat, Israel has been pounding and bombing Gaza for now 10 days. And what is Netanyahu? Of course, it just so happens that Netanyahu has political problems because he's corrupt. Because he sold worthless weapons to the Egyptian army and received a hefty commission. And it just so happens that at the time that he is confronting the threat of prosecution, it just so happens that he remembers that the Palestinians need a thorough beating again. And his excuse is that the Palestinians are sending balloons across the borders that are incendiary balloons. They're causing fires. Not, they haven't burned a single Israeli building or structure or habitat. They haven't even injured a single Israeli. But these balloons have caused fires in farms and in crops. Fires, by the way, that are the size of this living room. Is it a coincidence that every time Netanyahu has political problems domestically, he discovers that the Palestinians are a threat? And the, the, the unethical world that we live in that is so ready to accept the Israeli narrative, not the Israeli, but the narrative of Netanyahu's government, so that Israel can bomb Gaza for a whole, for over a week now, ten days, since the accord with the Emirates, with the Emirat, and you don't even find hardly a mention in the news. Even. I checked the Jazeera in English yesterday, and even the way Jazeera in English reports on it, it's like same old, same old. The Israeli army killing Palestinians again. Do we really need to remember that this is the Trump administration in the White House? doesn't even bother with going through the motions that the American government used to go through of trying to impose a ceasefire so that the bloodletting will stop. And we meet in new year, Muslim year, Muharram. Palestinians are slaughtered. Kashmiris are persecuted. Muslims all over India are suffering with the rise of Hindu nationalism. Muslims in Ethiopia are suffering with the rise of Christian nationalism. Muslim countries are ruled by despots that were out, literally, out of our Freddy Krueger nightmares. The slaughter of Muslims continues from the Rohingyas to China to, to Yemen to Libya to Syria. We discover that 
the guardians of the two holy sites invited the Russians come slaughter Muslims no problem and they've done the same thing in Libya or at least attempting to do same things in Libya and all of that because the logic of Islamophobia rules the world and where can you trace it back you can trace it back to the person sitting in the White House and then we have a major Muslim institution telling us that's okay. It's okay to have an Islamophile in the White House. It's okay to have a racist in the White House. It's okay to have a bigot in the White House. It's okay to have a Christian nationalist in the White House. It's okay to have a white supremacist in the White House. It's okay. Smile to the new world. Embrace the coming of the new world. A world in which Muslims are demeaned and degraded and humiliated and despised and marginalized. And smile because your responsibility is to teach your children how to pray correctly. And then die and go meet Allah. I've said it before and I say it again. It's time that we impose standards for those Muslims who supposedly represent us. It is time that we vote by refusing to send our children to institutions that uphold immorality, that at a minimum don't stand against racism and religious bigotry, and especially when this religious bigotry is directed at Islam. Some of you might wonder well, what to do? What to do? The two things I want to touch upon and do it quickly because I'm out of time as usual. One, leave the results to Allah. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet himself, your obligation is to speak the truth. What happens after that is up to Allah. Your obligation 
is dua. The ijabah is on Allah. The hisab is on Allah. I'm not going to tell you what ethics requires you to do other than to tell you act ethically. Even in the realm of politics. Just because it's politics, it doesn't absolve you of your moral responsibility. At a minimum, I know that supporting a racist and a religious bigot is unethical. Beyond that, whether you should support someone else or not, I don't know and I don't care. But it is absolutely imperative that somehow we don't leave Islamic ethics out the door just because we're stepping in the world of politics. Second, and I'm going to leave this to another khutbah that perhaps I'll focus on this. We see a re-emergence of the asinine backwards idea that democracy is haram and so it is incumbent upon Muslims not to vote in a democracy because democracy is haram. The same old Wahhabi trope now in its new packaging Again, it comes from Saudi and the Emirat, which hate nothing more than they hate democracy. In fact, the coup in Egypt was because these countries didn't want a democracy. The slaughter in Yemen, because these countries didn't want a democracy. The slaughter in Syria is because these countries didn't want a democracy. And they found ready allies in the U.S. and Russia and Israel because these countries don't want a democracy, especially if it occurs in Muslim countries. Because these countries think democracy is good enough only for white people. But not for Muslims. The idea that voting is haram is so backwards that I'll tell you if this is truly what you believe then you have an obligation to immediately pick up and leave the entire West because the same theology that you ascribe to says that living in the lands of Kufr is haram and you should not live in the lands of Kufr and promptly do to Hijrah to wherever you want to go live, in Mars, on the moon, wherever it is. But finally, and perhaps most importantly, 
if you complain that you are walking on a road and that road has become very dark and that you can't even see the fingers in front of your face and that it is so dark you keep getting lost and taking wrong twists and turns. And I remind you that in your back pocket you are carrying a flashlight. The most logical thing in the world is get out your flashlight, turn it on, and re-attempt to walk in that dark alley again. Well, Allah has given us that flashlight. And that flashlight in the back of our pocket, in that dark road, is the Quran. But we have become so backwards that we have forgotten or we often forget that, the, that we are carrying a flashlight, but even when we remember the flashlight, we don't know how to turn it on. Because let's face it, the vast majority of us can read the Quran and can understand very little. The vast majority of those who teach the Quran in the West are woefully unqualified. I have started a new Quran Tafsir project precisely because of this. And if you want to know whether the Quran can be intelligible to you, and if you want to know whether the Quran can speak directly to you, and whether the Quran can guide you personally in the affairs of your life, Check out those new tafsir sessions. Try it out for yourself. This is not a line-by-line -line tafsir. We don't just pluck out ayat out of context. And for every ayah, there is a counter ayah. This is a journey in the ethics of the Quran. The flashlight in the darkness. The gift of light in the midst of this dark confusion that we dwell in. I can't think of something more worthy to do when there is so much ugliness that surrounds our life, then to hold steadfast to the heart of beauty. And the heart of beauty is the Quran. A luminous source in the midst of all these folds of darkness that gather around us. Allahumma ghfir lana. Allahumma afu anna. Allahumma arhamna ya Rabbi.
وَهَدِنَا لِأَقْرَبَ مِنْ هَذَا رَشَدَ يَا عَلِيَ عَظِيمٌ Allah forgive our sins and grant us light and guidance. Bring us ever more closer to you, Ya Allah. You are aid, our support, our inspiration, our very purpose. So grant us serenity, peace, and beauty, and light, and kindness. And bless and peace, peace and peace and blessings be upon the Prophet Muhammad.